You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. From the ashes of the 2008 financial crisis arose a new kind of software company. A far cry from their enterprise vendor brethren, these new financial technology companies, or fintechs, targeted consumers directly, providing services that looked a lot like those you usually get from banks like holding deposits or making payments. Sometimes they even offered things the banks simply didn't, like splitting a tab with friends, sending money overseas instantly or automatically investing your savings. Perhaps most importantly, these services were offered without any branches. Riding the wave of the smartphone, these fintechs offered their wares wherever you were, all in the palm of your hand, wrapped in a beautifully designed digital package. Now, traditional banks were not about to take this lying down. Over the last decade, they have poured billions into creating their own mobile banking offerings, trying their very best to emulate these digital natives who seem to be outmaneuvering them with each new innovation. In this episode, we survey the banking battlefield, the theater of combat where these new fintech upstarts wrangle with the big bank heavyweights to see who will capture the future of financial services. To be sure, open banking only adds fuel to the already intense fire. My guest on this episode is David Breer. David is a bit of a celebrity in the open banking space. He's the founder and CEO of 11FS, a world-renowned fintech consultancy that focuses on building and launching the next generation of digital propositions for some of the biggest banks in the world. Over the past four years, he's advanced the adoption of open banking globally with the key phrase, we're only 1% finished. David is also the host of the Fintech Insider Breakfast Show and the Fintech Insider Podcast. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. You've used the phrase, the banking battlefield. What is the banking battlefield? And what does it mean for financial institutions and customers? I mean, I always think unless you can draw a really simple diagram of something, you don't really understand it. So from our perspective, the banking battlefield really is how we explain all of the different confluence of forces that are happening in financial services right now. Because, I mean, it used to be big banks just worried about the big blue one, worried about the big red one. And the disruption that we've seen in the financial services market over the last 11, 12 years, predominantly sort of really driven by that financial crisis that now seems like a million years ago, has actually just changed the dynamic of the landscape and changed the dynamic of that battlefield so much. You know, we've got gigantic technology players like Apple and Google straying into financial services in a way that they've never really done before. Or we've got new startups being created and scaling at a rate that we've never really seen. And all of this is changing that battle. It's changing the dynamic of financial services. But what we're seeing is just a, a much greater choice and a much greater level of service for consumers. 
To be sure, big tech, the GAFAs, as they're sometimes called, have started to move into the banking sphere in earnest. Should the big banks be worried? If you look at a lot of the organizations that are coming in, I mean, Google is partnering with Citibank. Apple is partnering with Goldman Sachs. So those big organizations are coming in and not necessarily replacing those big incumbent organizations immediately. But actually, the ramifications and repercussions of those types of partnerships are are very, very significant. Universal banking has always been predicated on seeing your customer, creating a relationship, cross-sell and upsell. Can you sell 2.3 or 2.4 products to achieve real profitability in terms of what your consumer base actually is? If bigger brands and people with more money to spend and those big organizations that people really, truly love start delivering things that consumers really need, then that spells like a real difficult situation for those big incumbent organizations, because arguably what that then leads to is a commoditization spiral that doesn't really work out for anybody particularly well in that market. It's all at that point around who is quickest, who is cheapest, and who is best. What we know about the big incumbent organizations, the Bank of America's, the Wells Fargo's right now, the cost to run those organizations is very, very, very significant. But I don't think it's quite going to be the sort of revolution overnight that everybody's predicting. A quick introduction to the banking battlefield reveals that it really started after 2008 where the financial crisis eroded much of the bank's hard-earned trust. Add to that the arrival of the smartphone, a whole new channel for banking, and it was really the perfect storm. Since then, scores of startups have emerged, some achieving coveted unicorn status. And while sometimes they are small, the Googles and Apples of the world have also become fintechs and are now actively trying to take a piece of the banking pie. But the banks have woken up too. The smart ones have already realized that they can't rely on their old product lines, as these lead to, in David's words, the dreaded commoditization spiral. So they're going to have to learn to do battle in a radically different way. An analogy that David often uses to describe the bank's response to this Fintech rebellion is the empire strikes back. I asked him to elaborate. First of all, favorite Star Wars movie. So, you know, I'm always going to put that reference in there somewhere. But the thing for me is the big incumbent organizations have crazy amount of people who are really passionate about solving consumers problems. They have talent and they have people who really understand what those problems are. The thing that actually inhibits them from making these changes is predominantly themselves. And while many people that are there will say it's the regulator or it's technology, really all of these things come down to cultural barriers to change. I mean, the way in which we've always done it is the way in which I feel comfortable doing it next. And this really is what's distinguishing between the organizations and and actually the leaders within those organizations really, truly getting what the new horizon looks like for financial services. And the ones who are really just there to try and permeate and continue the business models and the models that they've had before. You know, the Empire Strikes Back vibe is, is, well, fintech has been sort of held up as this pillar of the industry. 
When the reality is, is that big incumbent organizations still have most of the customers. They still have most of the opportunity. They still have brands that everybody recognizes and has trust in. Now, that type of trust is different than it was maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, but they still trust those organizations not to disappear. While in the fintech sphere, then I think while there's a lot of excitement, there is a lot of investment, by no means is this fight over. There are a number of ways that a bank can transform itself as it moves through this modernization, this empire strikes back phase. They can either rebuild their core, they can disrupt themselves with an entirely new digital challenger brand, or they can try and find a middle ground by starting to move pieces to the cloud. Are you an advocate of a particular strategy? People try and pick one of those things. And that sounds just like a whole heap of risk to me. I mean, the the best technology companies are advancing so much. They don't try and pin all of their hopes and the future of their organization on one way of doing something. I mean, how many times have we seen Google come out with something that does an amazing job and takes off in a huge way? But equally, how many times have we seen them launch something, cough Google Glass, you know, like that goes away after a period of time, but they learn from it and they move forwards. If you see the industry that we sit in now and actually how financial services, those big incumbents are trying to address this, it isn't just one of those strategies. If you look at JP Morgan Chase with what they did with the challenger in the US and now building another challenger over in the UK, they're continually trying to learn and perfect what these things need to be doing. And increasingly what we're finding, and I mean, a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last four years as well, is that major inhibitor to really being brave and making these changes. It's very, very difficult to do that at scale. It's very difficult to take a 300,000 person organization and make them think differently and act differently in a short time window. Building something new, building something greenfield that actually allows you to use today's technology, but establish the rigor and processes and culture that you really want to be the the seed that your entire organization is grown around, that is easier to be done with 20, 30, 40, 50 people, and then scaling up that benefit to the rest of the organization. When the really great thing about this period of time is that, that actually what we're seeing is there is no one strategy. It's very much down to the organization and the maturity of that organization, how ready for change they really, really are. The big banks may be the empire, but they still have something the fintechs don't. Trust. It is this trust, this confidence, that they will not disappear overnight that keeps people banking with well-known banking brands. With these customers comes opportunity. So how do they adapt quickly enough to keep their customers in the face of all these wonderful fintech options? According to David, at the core of this challenge is addressing the culture and its willingness to adapt. Organizations must have the courage to challenge how they do things today, to try new approaches and to let them fail, to learn from those failures quickly and to have the rigor to move ahead. Enabling this kind of transformation is exactly what 11FS has been doing in the UK and beyond. That's where David and I pick things up.
again, off the back of the crisis in 2008, the regulator in the UK took such a different approach, I'd say, than pretty much everybody else globally, which was to create opportunities for competition through reducing the regulatory burden, through increasing their engagement with community, through making it a little bit easier to get access to and get into financial services in the first place in terms of the amount of liquidity that you need to gain access to a license. So, and all of that, Again, you fast forward 12 years, we've now got challenger banks like a Monzo or a Starling or a Revolut who are really disrupting not only what is being delivered to consumers, but actually teaching the the old dog some new tricks when it comes to those incumbent banks and really resetting what great customer experience is. So from our perspective, what we've been doing in the UK is, is trying to help those big incumbents learn these new tricks. Really, what we break down that we do is how do you take challenger mentalities and methodologies and just apply them against big organizational problems? Because the digital world is fundamentally different to that analog world that the big incumbent organizations have been used to operating in. You often talk about the difference between just getting rid of paper processes and moving to relationships. Can you explain for our audience What is the difference between digitize and digital? In a digitized sense, and it's really difficult for people to sort of get out of that mindset because people understand the process that they have. You know, if you're a wealth manager in a branch, you get that you've got a piece of paper in front of you where you're talking to the customer and you're writing down the bits of information. But what people have done when they've created digital within their capabilities, take that piece of paper and just represent it onto an internet website in a very similar way that big organizations have just taken forms that you would have written on and digitizing them and making them forms where you're putting fields on it. And that materially doesn't change what you're doing. It just moves it from a piece of paper to a screen. And the challenge with that is that the virtues of a digital world are so dramatically different to the virtues of an analog world. We talk about digital riches. If it's truly digital, it is real time, it is intelligent, it's contextual, it's human in the delivery of it and how it communicates, it's extendable and it's social. Now, if you make a service that actually is real time, the live playback and the feedback of the service that you're providing, if you make it intelligent, so it's using all of the power of the data that is actually available, is it contextual? With the data and the capability that we have to understand the context in which people are trying to access your service, is it 3 a.m. and somebody's trying to apply for a loan? Is it that somebody's trying to take money out of an ATM but we know that their phone is with them, how does that change the security measures and security mechanisms? So the context is really, really important. The human part, I think, is sort of getting to the critical piece of what digital needs to do. I mean, people took paper out of the process, but they took people out of the interface. People are really good at dealing with people. If you take out of the process the person who made that complex process simple to understand, Well, web interfaces have not replicated that well. This isn't about chatbots and artificial intelligence. It's just talking to humans like humans. A lot of organizations have forgotten that. Extendability for me is, if I want a loan, do I have to go to a bank to do that? Or can that service be integrated where I want it to happen? So for me, that digitized world has just been very underwhelming for a long period of time. 
the one-to-one relationship and experiences that digital really promised to deliver, nobody has really delivered on that yet. Which is why I don't think we've seen digital banking yet. I think we've seen digitized banking and we're starting to see the emergence of the trends that can lead towards a truly digital experience. So really for us, what digital banking is, is it's democratization of wealth experiences. How can you take a private banking experience and democratize it and commoditize it to the mass market? What would be the equivalent of five people looking at your transactions and your wealth and the investments and your cars and changing direct debits and standing orders? What would that look like and what would the context of that be? And with all of the advancements that we have today with open banking and technology and connectivity from a mobile perspective, then how could we replicate that and how could we create that, but create it for everybody? Digitize versus digital. Understanding the difference is crucial to success as a fintech. Digitize simply means replacing paper. Take a form that is usually printed out, replace it with a web form, and you're done. No need to make the form simpler or the process faster. Digital is a completely different animal. To be truly digital, your experience has to be digitally native, built to be digital from the ground up. According to David, that means having six key characteristics. Real-time, intelligent, contextual, human, extendable, and social. It is these delightful, intuitive, digitally native experiences that have made people fall in love with challenger banks and other fintechs, especially in fast-moving markets like the UK. But some say it's all hype. Even though fintechs are often celebrated, and even though they amass huge numbers of customers in record time, the sad fact is that most of their users simply don't keep that much money in deposit with them. I asked David why he thought that was so, and whether it was likely to change. I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of the challenges have almost stumbled into creating a new category rather than shifting the industry. Which is why I think we've sort of seen that type of behavior. We've started to see almost the discretionary spend arm of financial services, which, you know, you've got a card with a fancy color attached to it. It gives you that endorphin hit and you feel part of a community when you're using it. That guy in the bar says, cool card, I've got one of those. That happens, right? So the mechanism behind that is, well, if those organizations are creating things for discretionary spend... But all of the balances and all of the costs are actually still sitting with the incumbents. It's creating an interesting sort of dichotomy between traditional finances and what traditional incumbents will do and what the new players will do. So while I think it's a definite worry that if I was a Starling, if I was a Monzo, if I was a Revolut or an N26 or anybody in that space, I think people are very short sighted in terms of how they remember history. No bank ever started with 15 different product lines in five different areas of business. Uh, Every bank started doing one thing exceptionally well, that it then parlayed that trust of doing that one thing exceptionally well for their customers into another product and another product and another product. And the success of that building out that community and that trust allowed them to be ridiculously successful for the last 300 years and get to the point where we're at now. Let's talk about the challenges of building up that trust for a new fintech entrant. What does it take 
for a fintech to create the right kind of trust. I think when it comes to the trust side of things, well, I think trust is relatively straightforward. And having seen this in other industries is that consumers and people kind of walking around the street, you know, non-fintech geeks like us in terms of the things that we know those people don't know, then so long as they start to see brands in the mainstream and they're making things that allow them to sit within their psyche when they're making a decision about her to do business with. And really what that boils down to is predominantly above the line spend. If you have TV adverts, if you can create a brand and create a narrative, and then you can build off that and actually deliver on those brand promises by delivering that service, anybody can build a brand. So so long as those challenger banks and any fintech in that space, they can cut through the noise and deliver on those promises. I actually think that will be okay for them to build. And clearly we're sort of seeing that in terms of the size of the bases that they're building. Now, to keep that trust, you have to stay trustworthy. Enter Wirecard, a European fintech that other fintechs actually depend on to offer their services. Recently, Wirecard went through a high-profile, scandal-ridden implosion. Your perspective on that event and the unique FCA recovery. When it comes to things like the Wirecard side of things, it, I mean, there's been sort of, you know, rumors about various different problems for a while and almost, you know, unprecedented level of success that they've had seemed almost sort of too good to be true for, a, you know, a long period of time, really. It's been, I think, really interesting to see the reaction of the market. I mean, one of the things that fintechs are particularly famed for is real transparency of problems. And I think if you have a look at the companies that have been really affected by wire cards and the FCA's immediate steps to go until we know better. We're putting a freeze on this. Obviously, the knock-on effect that that had from a wire cards customer's perspective was a lot of people's cards stopped working. But for Curve and for Anna Money, the communication publicly has been, I think, pretty phenomenal. Anna Money's transparency and communication all the way through, I think, has endeared them to their customers who already you know, had a lot of respect and a lot of love for them as a brand. And I think the question will be in the sense of where this problem has come from with Wirecard's perspective is, I mean, somebody's been auditing their accounts for the last 10 years. It's going to be really, really interesting to see what level of deceit has happened to allow a top four accounting firm to sign off given it looks like 1.9 billion of funds was imaginary. I think the regulator will step into a role to start investigating those things a little bit closer. We talked about the market activity related to Wirecard. Let's talk about some other market activity. Recently, Visa acquired Plaid for $5.3 billion. MasterCard acquired open banking stalwart Finicity. What do you see as the reason for those acquisitions? Look, payments in sort of in the way in which we've described the fear for pipes generally I mean, it's being commoditized at a huge rate. And actually, for me, if you start looking at the players like Plaid, like other players actually in that space as well, who are doing more to integrate the data that actually sits out there to fundamentally start changing how the services are being created and surfaced to customers, that is a huge play for the visas and the MasterCards. And so for me, it sort of just makes sense. It's like if your consumers are commoditizing your existing product set, you have to continually be looking for new and amazing things to create differentiation and add extra value on top of the things that you're doing already. 
Apple didn't just build the computer and stick to building computers. No, they built on top of what those computers could do. And and now I've got a watch and a phone and a iPad and all the different things that kind of come with it because they filled value voids that I didn't even know I had. In some instances, I'm pretty sure I still don't have, but I still bought those products, whether it's MasterCard or whether it's Visa or whether it's other players kind of in the mix who are moving into the payments territory. Adding value and adding more value means you've got the potential to continue expanding your opportunities, continue expanding your revenue, and really, ultimately, as I said before, just increasing the relevance that you have to ever-changing community of people out there who you serve. So I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense. I think some of the valuations of the companies is eye-watering, but when you look at you are buying relevance to your customers, it probably makes a lot of sense even at the costs that they're paying. So it turns out that the big secret is rather obvious. To get customers, you have to offer real value. To keep them, you have to respect them and earn their trust. Offering real value in a world of endless options where your products are being constantly commoditized is not an easy thing to do. You have to use your imagination to build new and interesting offerings on top of what you already have. In keeping with David's computer analogy, people don't bank to have a bank, at least not anymore. Today, they choose a bank for what it does. Which makes a great segue to open banking. Open banking makes possible the secure sharing of financial data, in turn, opening up a new universe of combinations and possibilities. What exactly is the relationship between open banking and fintech? Does fintech need open banking to succeed? These are the questions I put to David next. I genuinely think the changes that we've seen in the regulatory space has fueled everything that we're seeing today. And whether it's the regulatory change to make it easier to get licenses or whether it's the regulatory change that has led to sandboxes being created everywhere to create opportunity or whether it's open banking and PSD2, whether it's those regulations that are really creating this, you know, chess moves moving around the board. I think what open banking really does, and I don't think it's just a fintech thing, it takes opportunity outside of the four walls where it probably would have sat before. I mean, I often sort of say with open banking is there's no organization on the planet from a banking perspective who couldn't have done this, right? They've got enough money. They would have had enough time. They could have exposed APIs. They could have worked with different people. They could have worked with a developer community and, and had a different pressure on their internal development mechanisms and, and actually their incumbent suppliers in terms of the costs of these things. But it requires almost a level of emotional intelligence to let go of some of those elements of control and expose these things to really allow things to happen. The origins of this come from removing some of those controls and removing that sort of stranglehold on the industry that the big incumbents really had. I mean, before mobile banking, nobody was talking about exposing APIs. I honestly think this has been a real swell of change that we've seen over the last 10 to 12 years that really now is culminating in people who are really excited about driving fundamental reform of what consumer experience is. And whether that's fintechs or whether that's banks or whether it's 
brands that have no relevance to financial services at all and just have a great community of people who want to offer a new service to their customers. Now, things like open banking is allowing them to start to fulfill the needs of their consumers, to fulfill needs that their consumers didn't even know they had. I mean, I didn't know I needed an iPad, but now I kind of can't do without that thing because they generated the need with me. And actually, I think the thing that is great about the need is if you can generate a solution that solves a need for somebody, they don't care how it happens. They don't care what works or what doesn't work. The shift from horses to cars, the person doing both of those things didn't need a infinite grasp of the anatomy of a horse and they also didn't need a mechanical degree to understand how combustion engines worked but those two things one of them solved the problem better than the other one and this is really where i think open banking as an industry needs to move to is fundamentally now we have the lego blocks that we can put together in a way that we've never been able to do before to solve consumer problems that the consumer didn't even know that they had So when you speak to one of your clients and they ask you about open banking, what do you tell them? Is the answer different depending on the audience? If somebody says, what should you do with open banking? I'm like, tell me what your consumer's problems are. A microservices architecture is not going to allow you to solve your consumer's problems better, allow you to solve them quicker, but you still need to know what they are and you still need to know what those problems fundamentally are. And, and therefore, what is the solution that you can actually build and put in place to actually solve those things? If you look at the challenges around how most organizations are stuck, it isn't an ideas problem, it's an execution problem. If you look at the reason why Agile took off in such a massive way, and it's because of microservices architecture, it's because of digital allowing small teams of people to do what it used to require hundreds, maybe thousands of people to do in the past. Microservices, APIs, small groups of people lead to rapid iterations and changes and testing and learning and moving things forwards. This is really the revolution that APIs much more broadly and from a technological revolution perspective, the collapsing of monolithic stacks within organizations really leads to is it isn't what you do that's important. It's the way that you do it. The open banking leads to a fundamental different way to serve consumers' needs. You don't need to be a bank now to be in banking. You don't need to really be in a situation where the customer is yours to be in banking. That whole world is dramatically changing. I've heard you say before, don't talk about what open banking is. Talk about what open banking is doing. Focus on the use cases. What are some of your favorite use cases? If you look at what are we trying to emulate? What are we trying to replicate? If you're wealthy enough and you've got a private banker, and somebody can look at your finances and look at your transactional activity. They can look at how they can make you save money. They can look at how they can make you make more money. They're actually advising you on decisions to make to be better off. Open banking facilitates all of that. No longer do you need that beautiful Mayfair office with like the man with the glorious suit. Now there's an app out there that will do those things for you that will be continually monitoring, continually measuring, continually ensuring you're on the best deal some really great products out there. There's one called Snoop. I mean, it's fantastic. Like it has saved me a stack of cash because it did 
some simple analysis based on the transactional information that it could get. It then did some market analysis to actually understand where I could make some savings. And then it made the execution of that incredibly simple for me to basically save a bunch of money. So for me, this is the promise of it. Throughout all of that, I don't think they mentioned open banking to me once. Nobody said API to me. The revolution that is around open banking doesn't matter if I am excited by it or you are excited by it. If my mum can use a service and nobody says APIs and nobody says open banking to her, but she gets the benefit from it and there's a value exchange around that effort to the return that she gets from it, that's when I think the maturity in the market is really there. And and if I'm honest with you, I really don't think we're very far away from that now. On that note, what are the key things you think need to happen for open banking adoption to spread globally and mature? Definitely from a incumbent bank's perspective in terms of the APIs that have been exposed, the work that they're doing. I mean, it feels like we're at the infancy level there in terms of, yes, we've got the basics in place, but there is so much more that we can do. I see the entirety of the industry becoming more and more consumer-centric. It is consumers' data. It is consumers' accounts. They own these things in terms of what they're doing. And again, if you sort of take that lateral to other industries, we've seen this play out, right? In the mobile network operator, it used to be you changed from one carrier to another carrier, you lost your mobile number. Now the number is really the consumers that actually puts the consumer in control rather than the big organization in control of the consumer. And that control around what is coming out of open banking, what is coming out of open finance will be predominantly, as it always is, driven by solving needs for consumers and then getting the opportunity to solve more problems for more consumers based on the success of doing that in the first place. If the bank's fighting back against the fintechs is empire strikes back. Once we put all of this open banking stuff in place, these new kinds of Lego blocks, what does the return of the Jedi look like? I think it's going to be really, really interesting. If the fintechs scale, if open banking really scales, if disintermediation from consumers happens through new, weird and wonderful players kind of coming into the space, what happens then? While it's hard to pick who the winners and losers will be. I mean, fundamentally, the purpose and the driving force of all of these things is to create a better outcome for the consumer. At this stage, the only momentum, the only end state that I can definitely guarantee is that the consumer is increasingly becoming more and more informed. They're becoming to have a much greater level of choice in the market. And actually, by people having to after decades of not really needing to, having to compete for their custom, then the consumer is going to be treated better than ever before. And, you know, whether it's open banking or whether it's the kickoff of this that happened with the crisis or whether it's anything else that kind of comes through this period of time that's connected in driving that success, that is the best outcome you can really ever expect. David, where can our guests find out more about you and your work with 11FS? Send all complaints to david at 11FS.com. But no, I mean, you can find me predominantly these days over on LinkedIn. So uh, connect with me and uh, happy to chat about any of this stuff. Thank you for your time today, David. It's been great to have you on the show. No problem at all. Being a bank today is hard. On all sides, they are being disrupted by fintechs. 
Technology upstarts who use small, agile teams to do more with less. Bringing solutions to market quickly and cheaply, improving them continuously based on feedback from loyal users. To keep up with them, banks need to understand that it isn't an ideas problem, it's an execution problem. And while updating delivery processes and org structures is critical, it is not enough. You have to take a hard look at your culture. Do you have the emotional intelligence to let go of some elements of control? Are you ready to embrace change? If so, you can begin to truly innovate. Or to use David's words, to help solve consumer problems that the consumer didn't even know they had. And that's the real opportunity for open banking. By letting data flow freely between different service providers, it levels the playing field, creating a foundation to invent entirely new kinds of financial services. The real winner here is us, the everyday people who need to bank. In the coming years, we will enjoy more variety, more innovation, and more choice in the financial services available to us than anyone ever has before. It's our job to exercise this choice, use this freedom to help our money go further. Will the fintech rebellion succeed and lead to a glorious new age? Or will the mighty empire rise up to crush them? Perhaps the coming road lies somewhere in between. There's one thing you can be sure of. Open banking will play a critical role in the battles to come, forever changing the face of the banking battlefield. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.